Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, as always, and I'm back again with Josh from Shepherd's Cast. How you doing, Josh? Great. Um, it's late, but how about you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I've got my second win now, and uh, so I'm ready, ready to go. Um, so we're 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 back, and we're we're starting a new project, if that's uh, what we want to call it. Sure. Project's great. Mission. (laughs) That sounds good. That sounds lofty. To the Gentiles. We're going to be studying Mark together uh, over over time on the the podcast. Which sounds like a lot of fun. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So we're we're starting that tonight. And uh, so before we dive into the first uh, few verses of the first chapter. What in the world is the gospel of Mark? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it is <laughs> the shortest one. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The Cliff Notes um, version of the life of Jesus. No, it's got to be more than that. <laughs> no, it, he copied Matthew, didn't get it all, but he got <laughs> what he could. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, that I is like, a debate, like though, isn't it? It is. Who, it is. Who really wrote Actually, it first? Was it Matthew? Was it Mark? It obviously wasn't Luke, but it, it was what the the teaching notes. I forgot what they called that. The the lost the lost notes. Yeah. Not like um, an agnostic gospel way. Yeah. No. 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 It was. Uh, I, I read this debate. Then went back and forth determining the date, and I think uh, I think RC actually included it in his Reformation Study Bible. Um, they couldn't determine if Matthew or Luke wrote theirs first or if, or if Mark wrote his first and they copied and filled in the blanks that he wasn't there for mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, I don't know, I think it's great for evangelism. It's a good tool for evangelism because it's a short one. It hits the high points. Yeah. I, I feel like it would be a really good um, gospel for a, a pastor who in, who's in kind of in a revitalization project at a church to preach through as kind of the first book series to to preach through at a new church that is in need of a revitalization because you really do get sort of the ground uh, the grounding of the gospel pretty quickly and especially for a congregation that maybe hasn't heard expository preaching before the length of mark and its level of detail <clears throat> wow I don't know what happened there i'm going to try that again <laughs> <laughs> But with the length of Mark and the level of detail that's in it about certain things, um, because it is weird. It doesn't just skip over things like it. It condenses some things and tells you sort of like this happened this time and this happened. And then immediately this other thing happened. But then other times it drills down into details that that you find in the other in the other gospel accounts that, uh, you know, aren't aren't being glossed over there they're being examined a little bit. So it's, it's kind of an interesting mixed bag like that. It, it, it's not, like I said, it's not uh, the cliff notes version of the gospel. It's, Mm. it's uh, it it hits all the important details and fills in the rest with when it comes to the events. I'm not describing that very well, but (laughs) it's a little bit of both. It's fast paced, but also detailed when it, when it needs to be. Exactly. Fast paced. That, that is something that I find interesting about Mark's uh, gospel account 
um, every every single time he's moving on to something else, immediately after, or you know, <laughs> kind of reminds me of being a kid because when I wrote stories as a kid, I would I would always include so many times. Suddenly, this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, boom! <laughs> surprise. Uh, but do you uh, just is just a preference thing? Um, and I'm not even like dogmatic about it. What what? Whenever you hear some you hear someone talking about the uh, the gospels, do you, what do you, would you typically call them gospel accounts or gospel of or according to? That's kind of a ridiculous question. Uh, it's just always been something that kind of hung in the air. You know, you hear someone talking about, no, the gospel of Mark. Well, is it Mark's gospel or is it someone else's? Yeah, if I'm referring to a particular book, then I, I would say Mark's gospel. Mm-hmm. But I would call them gospel accounts. That's only what I would say. So if if I'm speaking generally about one of the four gospels, I'd call them gospel accounts because um, they are accounting for events and in truths as well. Um, but I don't really have a problem saying, you know, Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel, because we do have those names attached to them and all four of them are unique. And mm-hmm. so I think it is, it's okay. You know, each man has his own stamp on, on that gospel account, even though it's not a separate gospel in each book, it's the same gospel, but by God's grace, we have four different uh, accounts. Witnesses. Of it. Yeah. 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 Witnesses and perspectives and they're all agreeing, you know, they're not, they're not different accounts. It's not like Gnostic, the Gnostic gospels, which are, are only called that to try to, you know, piggyback on the, on the goodwill that comes with the actual gospel. But, Absolutely. but these are actually cohesive. Okay. Just, you know, thought I'd ask, that's always been something kind of burning that I never asked anyone. Um, you know, and you asked it's me <laughs> kind of a dumb question. So why would I ask anyone? Hey, do you call this Mark's gospel? Why do you think it belongs to Mark? You know, it's just always been a stupid question. <laughs> well, you know, it is funny though, because it has Mark's name on it, but I would almost like to call it Peter's gospel sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, Mark followed Peter around. It's probably Peter's words mostly. I'm sure. Yeah. Especially, I actually found a cool note about that, that uh, um, there's, there's a lot of relationship between, um, the way that, that the gospel of Mark moves and the details in it. Uh, so between Mark's gospel as a whole and Peter's speech in Acts 10, which is something I hadn't really noticed before until I, until I started looking into this, but there really is a lot of correlation um, between the way he speaks the gospel in his, in his sermon in Acts 10, in his, in his speech, um, and in the way that we see uh, things presented in the book of the, the gospel of Mark. So I think it's, it, that's further, further evidence that there's a, what, what's the word, a Petrine connection. <laughs> there's a Petrine, Petrine. connection. Involved. <laughs> Petrine, Petrine, pe- Petri dish. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just a country bumpkin trying to figure things out. Which is like Peter, right? Yeah. It's a Peter connection. Okay. Um, I saw another thing too. This is sort of an argument from church history as well, that uh, Papias, who was the Bishop of Hierapolis said, and it was, it was recorded that he said that he heard from John, the apostle that John Mark wrote this gospel heavily based on what he'd learned from Peter. So not only we have a, we have a kind of textual evidence that it was uh, coming from Peter's perspective, 
from from that uh, section in Acts in Acts ten, but also even from kind of church history records that uh, a credible person has said somebody who knew the Apostle John in real life that that John knew that John Mark had written it after being with Peter, which is kind of it's kind of cool. I like mm. I like that kind of stuff. That's interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny. I actually noted that as well. Something similar because Papias calls him or he calls Mark uh, Peter's interpreter or translator, which would make perfect sense uh, as to that theory that you just gave to um, just kind of tying it back to what you said about Acts. You know, if the language is the same, uh, was Peter didn't grow up, you know, getting to know all the good lingo and stuff. He didn't go to school mm-hmm. for all that. <laughs> so uh, he's sort it, of the it, opposite of Paul, right? Exactly. And if the two correlate so well, then that would make perfect sense. Yeah, I, don't, I you can you can see from any of the records about Peter, he's not a very sophisticated guy. Right. <laughs> and I think that's why we all like him so much. You know, when you read the Gospels, you identify with him so much because he talks when he shouldn't talk and he stays <laughs> quiet when he should talk. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> yeah, that's that's me to a T also. I really know the worst time to open my mouth. <laughs> Maybe the popes really are apostolically succeeding from him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're following his example big time. Just shut up, guy in the dress. <laughs> yeah, guy in the dress. Go sit in that bulletproof car and pray for a while. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I looked up. I'm always bad about the dates of when things were written or things. And uh, so I looked up and there, there's obviously some debate here. There's always debate about when particular texts were authored versus published. But mm. I've heard people saying that it was most likely written during the 50s and then published in the 60s. So either it was being continuously worked on for a decade or it was it was written and kept and then finally copied and distributed much later or not much later but you know up to a decade later and i think we we talked about this offline but i think one of the benefits of the 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 way that mark is written kind of kind of the it's short and punchy this happened immediately this happened this next thing happened so the fact that it's short and and crystal clear i think was a benefit to uh the spread of the gospel of Mark uh, on paper at the time, because it would have been a lot cheaper for uh, the church to pay for a professional scribe to make a copy and a lot easier to pass around if it's not a big tome, you know, right. right. I mean, it's not exactly like a tract size, but um, it's definitely a lot easier to, to pass around this book if it's significantly shorter. That makes sense. Um, I think would that fit with the, sharing it to the Gentiles. Cause I think that's what it's more aimed to with all of its description of Jewish culture and things like that, that Mark does to, to kind of help out. Yeah. It's dispersion. definitely more Gentile friendly than Matthew. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess Matthew's almost a commentary on the old Testament as well as a gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. And he hates on the Jews quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he sees a lot of, a lot of responsibility uh, with them, especially uh, when you're reading the the passion account from from Matthew's gospel, yeah. Um, so yeah, I I uh, I tried to write a uh, an aim 
statement of the aim of the gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, even though, like we said, that even though they're, they're telling the same gospel, they're not disagreeing, but each one kind of has a particular emphasis in mind. Uh, like we were just saying, Matthew is definitely geared toward a Jewish audience, or at least mm -hmm. an audience that is knowledgeable about the old Testament, about the law, um, all those kinds of things. So mostly going to be people who grew up in the synagogue. I, I think that there's a general audience in, involved here. So it could, it could be Mark's gospel is uh, just as applicable to Gentile believers as to Jewish believers. Mm -hmm. But I, I just kind of wrote, I tried to state the aim is to know Jesus Christ and in knowing him, be his disciple. And I think that's something unique to Mark um, simply because of the way that the book focuses on the acts of, of Christ um, following the disciples that are going with him and the fact that it's written from the perspective of kind of the preeminent of the 12. Um, I, I see discipleship as a huge focus of the book. Well, that would make sense. I mean, uh, I'm not extremely studied in it, um, but I, I can tell you that my pastor at a previous church, um, before uh, we ended up deciding to make this move, uh, he, he said something similar, um, just from a practical standpoint. He wanted to use Mark to uh, disciple folks, and I don't think he ever went through with it, but um, that was uh, that was a big aim that he was going to do. He was going to take everyone through Mark, kind of to give them an idea of what a disciple should look like. Um, and I, I can definitely say, I, in focusing on the theology aspect that I, I usually get tied into less of the practicality of what's going on there. And Hey, what are these little tiny words say? Um, and what are they actually pointing to? Um, I think my biggest question as far as Mark goes is, uh, as you know, John would probably be pointing from heaven down, um, and the synoptics here to include Mark, of course, would be mm -hmm. pointing from earth up kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I guess from a compatibilistic standpoint, you can get that idea in play. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's, I think that's true. I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that John had a lot more time and a lot, a lot more meditation time involved in compiling his gospel. Um, I think those, especially that, that fantastic beginning of John one is something that we don't get in any of the synoptic gospels. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think part of that has to do with that perspective of just over time uh, being able to fill in, in his gospel things that, that weren't in the others. And I think that these, the earlier, the earlier gospel accounts, even, even up to Luke's um, really are about, establishing christ in the flesh who was he what did he do where did he go who did he talk to um who did he do miracles on what happened to those people what were their names hard details you know mm -hmm. i think uh yeah i think i think those are really important so important that we we get them in in the synoptic gospels um, multiple times, you know, everybody tells the story of the woman who, who washed Jesus feet with her hair. 
that's a really important story. Um, and it's and it's important to know the transcendence of Christ from heaven to earth, and we do get that in John. But as a as a believer, the most difficult part, and I think this is borne out in the theology of the church as well. I think the most difficult part for us is understanding his humanity. And I think we're used to under we're used to to thinking of God become man. And we know so much of God from other books in the Bible, but to actually get into our minds that that Christ is truly man and truly God. That that becomes harder for us when we consider his humanity, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, it's an easy um, concept to say, uh, but to really chew on it and realize, you know, he's going. He he, he had the same temptations that you. Well, you know, to a grander mm-hmm. scale, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. the whole world can be yours, sir. Um, yeah, nobody but... else. Nobody else could be tempted to that degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's just it's hard to, to really focus on that, especially, you know, kind of in a reform standpoint, we typically focus all on the sovereignty. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone has anything to say, uh, we're quick to uh, correct on the sovereignty aspect. And I, I think as a new, um, not, not necessarily a new reform believer, but as someone who's new ish to the reform side of things, um, it is something that I probably am missing too. So I'm kind of glad we're going to go through this together. Yeah. Uh, Christology, and I, it was Mark Jones, who's no relation, by the way. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he said that books on Christology, you know, books, books about Christ don't sell well at all, which he says is, is a, real, a real shame. And I think we end up seeing that in the church to a certain degree, because uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those uh, surveys of theology that Ligonier does every year. Where they'll they'll send like just a, a slate of questions around, and they'll be asking people, you know, was Jesus created? And people will answer yes or no, or don't know, or or whatever. And they'll, they'll ask what seemed to us, any of us who have read into theology, even a small amount, would find to be easy questions, and they're getting them wrong. And a lot of ones pertaining to Jesus are are getting wrong. And, and they're either they're falling on either side, like overly canonic that that Jesus seems more human than divine, or they'll fall on the other side where Jesus is, seems to be more divine than human, almost like dividing him up. Like, oh, was he eighty percent divine, twenty percent man? <laughs> you know, no, truly God, truly man. There's no percentages about it. Is that a big mystery? To a certain degree, oh, for sure, but. If we were to if we were to read a little more carefully, maybe read some scholars on the topic, people who have studied and more than we can or, or have, I think we can know a little bit more about the hypostatic union than the average Christian does. And I think that's a good it's a good thing for us to do. I that's tried to dedicate last summer to be the summer of Christology for me. Mm-hmm. I was going to read only Christology books. And I got through a couple. I didn't get through as many as I wanted, but it was definitely challenging because there is yeah. a particular reformed view on it. Uh, another way that we're different from Rome and even from Lutherans as well. One of our distinctives as Protestants uh, in the reformed tradition. So this would, this would be for Presbyterians as well is a particular. Um, and I think biblical view of 
the two natures of Christ. And I think it's more in line with the uh, confessional history of the church, the creeds and confessions. But we can get into that at some point. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's actually what I was going to say. I was going to say, and that you know that shows the importance of creeds and confessions. That is something I learned kind of early on, um, especially in seminary and church history. It's one of the things, first things they really lay into is all these different councils that they set apart, set aside. You know, or we need to fix this thinking here, so we're going to create a creed about it, or we're going to add this to our confession to explain, mm-hmm. hey you know, this is, this is a heresy and we've dealt with this before. Let's not fall into this again. It's a great, it's a great wall to keep us kind of in line, not to entrap us in anything, of course, but Hmm. to keep us from falling into the same pitfalls we've fallen for 2000 years. (laughs) Yeah. And that's one of, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's one of the benefits of having the Reformation study Bible is that each Reformation study Bible has all the historic creeds and confessions in the reformed tradition and in back even further before the the 16th century uh bound in the back so if you ever have a question oh what does uh what does the athanasian creed say about such and such you know you can go back and read these really robust um trinitarian statements um or or statements about the uh the natures of christ you know neither confusing nor mixing them for instance Mm -hmm. which is something that rome and i would even say lutherans do um, which is a problem. It's 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 never bad to read the creeds. In fact, I I just I just said I just told that to somebody uh, uh, on Sunday. Uh, we were having a 1689 study at church in the evening, and I walked in and I <laughs> I just then I just walk in and say dumb stuff. But I walked in and said, "Oh, I feel the need the need for creeds." <laughs> <laughs> This, this is our problem. <laughs> the, need, the need for these statements. You're going to send someone astray. I know. I, yeah. <laughs> I repent. <laughs> I, I grew up hearing these, these statements, and, and you know where it got me? <laughs> Into a cage stage. <laughs> now you're surrounded by books, making memes, trying to get people to fight online, right? <laughs> No, that's not the goal. <laughs> that's right. Just... And if anybody who thinks so, they need to go back and listen to our last conversation and they'll right. get set straight. It's just a God ordained means right. to an end. He ordains the, the ends and the memes. And the memes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, you want to read the first eight, eight verses or would you like sure. me to read them? Oh, um, you know, whatever works. It's your podcast. Let, let them hear you read this. <laughs> All right. That's that's fine. All right. Mark, so Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, 
and ate locusts and wild honey. And he and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than, mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here ends the reading. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as I was studying this before we jumped on here, uh, I got a little, not necessarily cagey about the verse one here. Um, <clears throat> just, it's uh, easy growing up, because I grew up in church, um, but I never, you know, grasped it beyond these simple creeds and statements. Uh, and by simple creed, I, I, I mean like, you know, no creed but Christ kind of thing. Um, but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the first line, um, and I'm going to read what I wrote down just because, well, anyway, so for this do. to be, yeah, for this to be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not a jump right into the fact that he is on the cross really should make the reader ponder beyond the consumer Christian idea that the whole gospel is simply that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. When I was first born again, it was the idea in Romans 3 that suggested that none are good. And what this meant for me is that there had to be one that was good. And that's what the entire text was about. Um, and this carried the implication that the one, the one good one who took my sins on the cross had to live a perfect life. And it was like someone plugged in a light bulb and all the things just exploded around me. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes so far beyond just him suffering on the cross. You're missing the perfect life, the wrath that we deserve, the love, and all of these pieces that make the entire thing beyond merely irresistible in the sense that God will do what he wills, but irresistible in the sense of how could you say no? Um, how could the regenerate man who understands the whole gospel in the way of our finite minds can understand it turn away from Jesus? And I'm reminded by kind of a Charles Spurgeon idea here um, in that. Uh, he grew up in church the same way. He heard all these things over and over again, and it wasn't until he was regenerate that it all just kind of came to life around him. Uh, and I am a little cagey about this because, you know, growing up, you always ask, well, you know, what's the gospel? And all these Southern Baptist pastors just say, you know, Christ died for your sins. Mm -hmm. I don't get anything from that. Now, mm -hmm. I get it as a Christian who has read his Bible and knows what's going on now. But whenever I had no clue what was going on and I wasn't really listening and I hear like five or six words here and there, don't leave it there because yeah. that's where they left it. And I didn't get anything. Yeah. Um, Who is Jesus? What exactly. is sin? Why did he have to die? Stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I read that first, you know, that first line there and just, all right, I had to break it down. I was like, okay, I got to step back for a minute because just thinking about how this is the beginning. There's a whole life to go before, you know, in Markian style life. He didn't mm -hmm. start the birth like everyone else did, but right. there's a whole life to go before yeah. we die on the cross. Yeah. To, to pivot back to the creeds, you know, think about the, the apostles creed there. There's a whole, there, there are several statements in there about Jesus, about the life of Jesus uh, that all are a, a, an important enough part of understanding him and understanding his his earthly ministry uh, that it can't just be said simply in in one thing conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died and was buried, 
you know, all, all these things are there when we have to understand all the parts. So there's, there's a beginning for sure. You have to begin, but you don't begin and end at the same point. You have to have, you have to have that whole story in mind. Right. Because that story is how we know who Jesus is. That's how we're told. Yeah, absolutely. And these little snippets, and I, I have a theory uh, that I've like tossed back and forth with my wife before that, you know, these, these Southern Baptist pastors that we have now, they had good teachers, but these good teachers gave them things to help them remember these good lessons by. And that's now all these people teach is these once, you know, five or six word lessons trying to beat it into you. And we still have that today in popular sermons. You know, you'll hear these are your sermon points. These are the ones you want to hammer across. And sometimes you can hear those same statements kind of fleshing out of these sermon points, not all the time, but especially in, in modern kind of not seekery churches, but ones that have adopted a more seeker look. Um, these sermon points will just be hot topics that rhyme. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same way. And I feel like we're kind of heading towards the same path, not necessarily everybody, but, you know, the popular Christian culture, consumer culture, they want these people to catch something and they're catching these little snippets. And sometimes they're not 100% correct. They're just right. to, to give give out a sermon point. Yeah, I just saw an article actually this afternoon from For the Church. It was written by uh, Jared Wilson, and it was it was five um, sermon pet peeves. And one of the points in it was uh he just called it cameo Jesus where in the course of the sermon, whatever it's about, Jesus just gets a little cameo in it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so if, if Jesus is getting a cameo and he's not actually the, the, the prime theme, if he's not being uh, clearly uh, preached to people, then it's, it's barely a sermon. Really? I would even argue it's not a sermon at all. Right. You know, you're lecturing about something. Okay. But that's, you don't need a pulpit for that. Christ should be in our pulpit. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I always like to, to use Vody as an example of this, because you can listen to his revelation series and uh, it's slow going for me. I'm in like the sixth, no fifth video. Um, but at the end of every single one of the first four, he gives this amazing lecture, but it's about who Jesus is. It's about all of his attributes and why he's uh, he's giving us hope and revelation. And then at the end of it, he gives this call, and it's a call of someone that you know about because it's a call of someone you just heard about. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in some of these modern churches, you get this call at the end, and you're like, I don't know who Jesus exactly. is, but sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> you, you get these Rick Warren-style if you just prayed this prayer with me, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. And you're just like, okay, welcome great, to the purpose driven life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is it my purpose or his purpose? <laughs> it's Warren's purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have to have, we have to start at the beginning of the gospel. We can't start in the middle and we certainly shouldn't start at the end. And I, I would even argue in order to even begin the beginning of the gospel, we have to we have to at least have the Old Testament in there as well, because there's so much of number one the acts of Jesus, even the miracles that are are prefaced by things in the Old Testament. But you at least need to to be you at least need to have some grounding in what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis to understand the purpose for Jesus coming, right? 
you know, because if we don't if we don't understand sin, if we don't understand what original sin is, if we don't know who Adam and Eve were, if we don't understand uh, the true impact, the true effect of what the fall was for all the generations of mankind, then you are going to get a warped picture, even if you see the full gospel, like even if the full story of the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus is clearly explained to you, but you haven't had sin clearly explained to you, then you're, you're bound to, to go down a path uh, of, of an incomplete gospel presentation. If you don't understand the bad news that we're sinners, that we're exactly. cosmic traitors. I love, I love that. Every time I talk to anybody about anything, I, I always use that because I think that is such a good phrase, such a succinct and powerful phrase of, how horrible sin is like we finite beings have committed infinite sin because we're traitors against the infinite God. That's a bad, bad bit of bad news. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that the old Testament is so important Um, as a, as a new Testament Christian, as someone who grew up in church, I was always told not necessarily flat out, but we never visited the old Testament ever. And uh, it's kind of played out because in, in um, my, my granddad's and, and Methodism, you know, I'm working on it, but um, sorry, bro. Yeah. So he, uh, he let me know um, a couple of months ago, he said, they sent us new Bibles. And I was like, you know, great, cool. Everyone needs new Bibles. He was like, no, not ours. He said, so they took out the Old Testament, gave us a summary, and left in the New Testament. And uh, he, yeah, right. That's what I said. I was like, I don't, are you, did really? And he said, yeah. It's not a Bible. It's a New Testament. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, So that day, they they dropped the denomination and bought the church building and uh, became non-denomination. He's still got a lot I got to work on. Um, But he's no longer Methodist because they took out the old testament because you know you you have to have that in there um yeah it learning about Mm. just total depravity in general um you know my first trip down calvinist lane uh started in genesis 3 Mm -hmm. uh there's no way you can leave out the genesis story about who created you why he created you you know learn about the covenant of works um how you know we royally screwed up and then the covenant of grace right after that missing so much yeah yeah you need the full counsel of god it's the whole point you know we have all those books for a reason and even if the ones that don't feel super relevant they actually are uh they really are relevant mm-hmm. because they're painting this they're putting together this mosaic and that's kind of how i like to to see the bible sometimes you know we have we have an overarching meta narrative of the God who seeks and saves sinners. And every book of the Bible is one piece in the mosaic picture of that story. I've, I've described it that way to people before, like, Oh, why do I have to read Leviticus in this, you know, the Bible in a year plan? Like, no, Leviticus is really important. Granted, it's not super comfortable to read through, but in a, in a few days you can, you can get through it, but it is super in uh, uh, Deuteronomy as well. Like even Jesus, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy a lot. Um, it's really important that all that stuff is really important. 
I think I think numbers will be a stumbling block for the rest of my Christian life, but you know I'll get there. I'll get there. <laughs> those are those are hard books. They 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 are. Yeah, and well, yeah, they are. They are, but they're they're worth slogging through. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I could go on and on. But speaking of Old Testament books, we we get a nice quote from one in verse two. Well, actually, it's actually from two Old Testament books, or is it three? It's three. It's three. So we get Isaiah in the first part. Behold, I send my messenger before your, pay, your face to prepare your way. Malachi's in there. Uh, what was the other one? Joel? Exodus. Oh. I cheated. I used RC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay. Okay. So this is, some, this is something I... I I think it's kind of interesting. So think back to Hebrews where the, I'm going to go out on a limb, the preacher of Hebrews, because I think Hebrews is a sermon. The preacher of Paul. Hebrews said, uh, yeah, that's my hot take. I think it's a sermon of Paul that was, uh, that was written out by um, either Luke. It could have been Luke. It could have been, I've wondered if it was, if it might've been John Mark as well. Uh, but we, we won't know that this side of eternity, but um, regardless, he says, he says in there somewhere it says, and then he quotes a passage from the old Testament, or you think to uh, where uh, Peter quotes Psalm 16 in acts is it acts two. I put myself on the spot now, but anyway, he, he okay. quotes speaking of Christ from Psalm 16, but he uses a, uh, kind of a Greek translation that um, the words are a little different than the rendering of Psalm 16 in our, in our Bible. Uh, but to say that, to go back to this, how these guys were so, they were so learned in scripture, like they understood scripture so much that they were able to take these things from two or three different books, obviously talking about the same person, right? These, these are verses directly pointing to, to John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ and to put them together and, and, and put them uh, in the record. I think that is really fascinating. And uh, of course, and I, I think our, our best preachers and teachers do the same thing today too. It's, it's all about linking the text together, showing the full counsel of God speaking to this particular uh, truth that we're trying to express here. We're getting the, the old Testament background for the existence of John the Baptist and his ministry. It was foretold. This is prophecy coming to light, um, which is an interesting thing about old Testament prophecy too, because quite a few of them had sort of an, an initial, um, uh, an initial fulfillment, right. Mm -hmm. And then an ultimate fulfillment. Typological. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah, being a being a type or shadow of Christ. And I think we see that we see that here for sure, but it's about John the Baptist and about Christ, but saying that John the Baptist would come ahead of Christ and prepare the way. I think that stuff's really, really cool to see those connections. Yeah, I uh it's <clears throat> it definitely uh it makes everything appear like you know this, some pastors have some bigger shoes to fill than they actually are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
I read things like that and I, I didn't, I didn't twist it. Well, I didn't think about it so much as that. Um, but now that I do, I'm like, wow, you know, I really have a lot more studying to do before I ever, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it's funny. Cause I, I told my pastor a, a while back and, in, in kind of a discipleship meeting uh, that we were having, I was like, you know, I really think that pastors should be scholars just so in tuned with things that whenever someone comes up to them, um, then they can kind of, you know, they're, they drilling the pastor and the pastor just turns around and, you know, expands on this to the extent that they have clearly not only studied it, but have lived it out in the past, you know, 40 to 80 hours that this sermon has been, has been being put together. And, uh, I got, I got looks like you, you, if you really think that then no one's going to fit that standard. <laughs> and I was I don't know. I'm still. I don't, not I don't sold. think that's true. I'm. I'm not sold on on his take on it. Um. And I spoke to um because we're we're planting a church now as well, and I spoke to that that fellow about the same topic, and I mentioned it to him just because I, I like to throw this out to random people and see get their take on it. Um, looking for one that I can agree with, but uh, he said, um, I may not be a 100% scholar on everything as of right now you know i'm 30 years old and he was like but i i will say that i have studied whatever topic that i'm going to do to the extent that if someone come up to me and asked me about that topic that sunday i can probably give them a 45 minute discussion outside of my one hour uh, sermon that i'll have that i'll give and i was like you know i can i can deal with that i i can take that and understand and agree because you know you're only 30 you haven't read 80 years worth of text um from millions of years of accumulated dead people. Um, but I, I can, but at the I age of 30, that. if you're on your way to that, then you're doing a good thing, right? Cause right. You, you have to start somewhere. Exactly. And just to know that he's, he's putting that due diligence in is, is comforting. Um, and it lets me know that I'm not far off, even if my g- general assumption is terribly wrong. 